Good afternoon, everyone, and Merry Christmas. Welcome to this Christmas-themed faculty chat, one of the events in the Signum Symposia. I'm Sarita Higgins, Chair of the Language and Literature Department here at Signum, and I have two of our fine faculty with us today. I have Chris Swank and Carl Pearson, who are both uh, preceptors on our faculty, and they're going to talk to us about Oh, several Christmas-themed things today. Tolkien, Lewis Carroll, Chesterton, Mythopoeia, and ghosts, among other topics. So before I start um, asking them questions about literature today, we just have a few announcements. We want to let you know about some other upcoming events to keep your eye on. In January, we have a very special event. Dr. Tom Shippey is doing a seminar, kind of a mini class. It's going to be three 90-minute lectures. They're going to be on Thursdays, January 12th, 19th, and 26th at 4 o'clock Eastern Time, and he's talking about Tolkien's Beowulf. So this is a really great opportunity. If you missed his full semester Beowulf class, this is a great chance to get some of that information, and even if you took that class, he'll be taking a little bit of a different perspective, um, sort of giving the history of Tolkien's involvement with Beowulf and his, his lecture, his translation, his notes and commentaries. I hope you can be there for that. It's going to include some of Tolkien's personal reactions to the poem as well. And then I also want to remind you that we have our, uh, our big conference coming up, Mythmoot, Mythmoot 4, and the theme is Invoking Wonder. This is going to be June 1st through 4th in Leesburg, Virginia. And you can go to mythguard.org slash events slash mythmoot hyphen four. That's a Roman numeral four um, to check that out and submit an abstract if you want to present a paper. So those are a couple of really important upcoming events. And now, as everyone's getting ready for Christmas coming up in just a few days, we want to talk about Christmas and myth making. So, Chris and Carl, I thought I'd start out by asking you to define and discuss this important term, mythopoeia, or maybe we could even debate different pronunciations of it. Um, so, Chris, would you like to start us off and tell us a little bit about that term? Well, it, it is credited to Tolkien um, and the poem that he wrote with, uh, with that term, and in light of that, I just look at it as myth-making, so any writer who wants to create uh, a secondary world or a mythology in this world is mythopoeia. Okay. Carl, do you want to add on to that at all? Yeah, I, I, I mean, um, I'm using it in, in a sense, uh, the, the way Tolkien uses it, but of course I'm, I'm talking about uh, G.K. Chesterton and his, his work on Charles Dickens, and, and Chesterton, of course, comes before uh, J.R. Tolkien. So, so what I'm using it, but, but I mean, of course, Chesterton says a lot about mythopoeia. He, he just doesn't use the word precisely. So, so the way I'm using it is to talk about that, that kind of narrative that sort of hangs just in the middle between the earthly realm and the transcendent. So it, it gestures toward the beyond, maybe without even being very definitive about what that beyond is. So it, it's sort of a a mystery that in, invites or gestures. It's it's not strictly realism. There's sort of a a fairy element, but but it's not not all out fantasy either. It's it's a gesturing. That's how I would find it. 
Okay, um, so you're probably each going to get into this with your specific authors, but let me ask this question. So how can one make a myth? Doesn't a myth have to evolve sort of naturally from a culture and be you know, created by many people unintentionally over time? How could just one guy sit down in his study in England and, and make up a myth? So, Chris, you want to tackle that first? Um, well, of course, Tolkien, Tolkien did that um, in the Ainulin delay and, and the other Silmarillion materials, creating a pantheon of gods, creating the world. But um, invariably, you find that people who try to create myths rely on existing myths, and you'll see that in, in both Tolkien and L. Frank Baum's uh, attempts at making a mythology for Santa Claus, is that you take some things that evolved from the culture and you add your own elements in. And so you've got a new recipe there. Mm -hmm. So does, does Chesterton or does Dickens do something similar? Yes. Uh, I mean, the, the essay I'm, I'm looking at, it's, um, it's called Christmas Books uh, by Chesterton. And, and he's looking at Charles Dickens and, and Christmas. And, and he opens it by saying that the... the uh, the mystery of the mystery of Christmas and and vice versa. Uh, so so he, he does what Chesterton does when he's writing at his best. He he looks at mystery, but but of course this mystery he's talking about is is the mystery of celebrations of Christmas, sort of going back to the medieval period. So so he's talking about how Dickens in, in the, the most famous work being uh, Christmas Carol, but he talks about a few of his other Christmas pieces. How Dickens kind of channels this this ancient uh, web of mythopoeia uh, in, in his work. Okay, so he says that, um, so Chesterton says that A Christmas Carol is a good example of a Christmas mythology. What, what, how is he rating that? Uh, yes, yes, he, he, uh, he is quite a fan of, of, of A Christmas Carol. Um, and, and he, for, for a variety, uh, yeah, I mean, he he gives three um, three qualities that that you have to good that you have to have in in good Christmas stories, and and one is um, uh, what he calls crisis or, or drama. He he compares it to the uh, a game I wasn't familiar with, but um, apparently it was a thing a game called Snapdragons, where you uh, put put raisins in a, a bowl of brandy, light it on fire, and you you eat them and extinguish the fire in your mouth, and, and it's dangerous. Uh, so, so he, he talks about Christmas stories needing this sort of dramatic, dangerous quality. He he's the the second thing thing he says that it needs is it needs antagonism. So, uh, it should be a roaring fire in the middle of darkness and cold. Uh, it's it's sort of the the bright spot, and and everything else is bleak. So there's almost this this contrast between the the um, the inner warmth and, and the fog outside, and and the third thing he wants is uh, uh, the grotesque. He he really likes how over the top Dickens uh, ghosts are. Uh, he, he calls them goblins. Um, he he likes so so. If you think of the classic Alistair Sim Christmas Carol, sort of how overly dramatic that is. Uh, Chesterton loves that, and and he says the grotesque is better at representing joy than than even what is beautiful. He says. There's often something sad about what is beautiful, but to to represent joy, you need the grotesque, uh, and and those are his sort of three um, 
three things that you need in Christmas stories, and, and he says Dickens has all these things in spades. Wow, count on Chesterton for coming up with a surprising list of qualities, right? When you ask somebody what they love about their favorite Christmas stories, they don't usually think of conflict and the grotesque and antagonism. Um, Chris, how does that compare to Tolkien's sort of list of qualities that good myths have? Uh, um, actually, I was as Carl was speaking, I was comparing that list to Tolkien's Father Christmas Letters. Yeah. And all three of those are present, including playing snapdragons at Christmas. There is um, 1926 or 7 or 8 in there. The man in the moon comes down to visit Father Christmas in the North Polar Bear. And he gets drunk playing snapdragons and has to be rolled under the sofa, which is quite fun. So that must have been a very popular Christmas pastime. But they also have the threat of the goblin invasion through the years and, uh, and the grotesqueries of of the goblins. So I think that Chesterton might have enjoyed Tolkien's Christmas letters as a story. Yeah. Um, what about eucatastrophe? Is that essential for Tolkien in a Christmas story? Or is that to be postponed till an Easter story, perhaps? Ah, yes, I don't know. Well, the thing we have with Tolkien and the Father Christmas letters is that this was a private mythology. Yeah. that he was creating for his children. He didn't intend for it to be published or distributed the way we have now. So I think that he was maybe more focused on um, what we would call Easter eggs in a video game or a Marvel superhero movie, yeah. where if you're in the know and you see little things happening in the background, um, you get more out of it. And I think that their private jokes and their references to family events, rather than trying to be creating some broader mythology for the public. So I'm not quite sure if his uh, on fairy stories and eucatastrophe applies to these letters or not. Yeah. Okay, so let's take a step back now. This is great. We've already gotten into some really important ideas, but let's take a step back and just sort of each of you will go back and forth and kind of give an overview of the texts that you're discussing. So Chris, why don't you do a little bit more about the Father Christmas letters then we'll go back and forth, and we'll come back to L. Frank Baum in a minute. So just for those who haven't read or seen them, there they are. Tell us, tell us about that book. Um, in 1920, uh, Tolkien's oldest son, John, had asked about Father Christmas, which in America we call Santa Claus. They're basically the same characters now. And please, if I start coughing, I apologize. I've had a cold this week. Um, and he began a tradition of writing in the persona of Father Christmas or one of Father Christmas's friends Christmas letters to the children for 23 years. I'm going to let Carl pick it up here for a second. Okay. So um, tell us a little bit more. You've already mentioned there's this essay uh, of Chesterton's about a Christmas carol or about Dickens in general. Yeah, the, the, I'll, I'll give uh, the, the title because it's free online. Uh, the book it's in, which is free on Project Gutenberg, is uh, called, it's Chesterton, uh, it's called Appreciations and Criticisms of the Works of Charles Dickens. It's, it's basically a, coll a collection of his prefaces to, to the Dickens books, um, but this one is called Christmas Books, uh, which shouldn't be confused with the one in Chesterton's biography of Dickens, which is not as good as the one called Christmas Books. Uh, <laughs> So, so that's the the essay, and of course, the the book I'm talking about primarily is uh, Dickens' Christmas Carol, uh, 
Yeah, um, with some nice grotesque pictures on the front there. So Nice. Without which no Christmas celebration is complete. And Carita said, no holiday celebration is complete without alcohol and fire. And a copy of Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, right, Carita? Great. Okay, and then, Chris, you also wanted to bring in L. Frank Baum's The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus. So what is that? I hadn't heard of that work before. This, this is a, a lesser-known work of his. The uh, Wonderful Wizard of Oz was written in 1900, and then this was the second novel that he wrote before he wrote any um, sequels to the Oz books. And it was a, an attempt to create a backstory for Santa Claus, since all we have really is him as an old man. Baum wondered how he became uh, a gift giver, and he created a mythology that was separate from the Oz to begin with, and then it got enfolded into the Oz books later. Okay, so it's a superhero origin story for Santa Claus. Indeed. Yeah, but it's not, is it not connected to the, the St. Nicholas stories? It's a completely different um, mythology from that. This is more of a hero story. An abandoned, foundling, orphan human is raised by fairies in a forest mm -hmm. and eventually becomes uh, an immortal toy maker to, to um, give children joy. So it's a completely invented mythology not related to St. Nicholas of Myra. Okay, great. That's fascinating. Um, so what resonances does it have then with Tolkien's Father Christmas? What's really interesting is that both of them felt that there needed to be some conflict. And, and I go back to what um, Carl was saying about Chesterton's requirements for a good Christmas story. And in Tolkien's Father Christmas letters, there are occasional battles with goblins. In Baum's um, Life and Adventures of Santa Claus, the antagonists are called Aguas. They're giant, invisible, supernatural creatures that cause children to misbehave. And they don't like it that um, Claus is giving the children joy, so they attack him. Okay. So we've got elements of the antagonist, the conflict, uh, the grotesque in there as well. That's, that's fascinating. Um, so, Carl, did you want to, well, no, we'll save that. We'll save the, uh, the idea of the dichotomies for later on and breaking that down. So, what else do you want to talk to us about with hauntings and ghostliness and the grotesque in Christmas, Carl? Oh, well, uh, what, what else do I want to, to say about that? For sort of kind of background on the text, and then we can, we can go deeper. Yeah, I, I, I mean, for, for background on the texts, uh, I mean, one, one of the things I, I like to, to use this text for is, is for thinking about Christmas mythopoeia more, more generally. And, um, sorry, is this what you want to, to, to save till later? Uh, no, that's fine. That's great. Let's go into the mythopoeia more generally. Okay, you know, oh, okay, um, yeah. One of the the reasons I I like this this essay uh, is is because it it gives a lens for for looking at uh, all kind all ki kinds of stories that go on around Christmas and 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 doesn't um, uh, sort of uh, pit one story against another. So um, 
you, you will get people who, you know, will will want to to say, you know, if if you have other mythopoeic stories um, going on around Christmas, they they are in sort of competition with the main religious meaning of of Christmas. Um, and I like what Chesterton does here because he, he wants it all. Um, I, I mean, he, um, he he doesn't in this essay. He's of course talking about Dickens, so he doesn't actually say that much about the the Christian story per se. Um, in the same way that Dickens doesn't, but it's it's always sort of implicit there in the background. Um, but but this this offers a lens for for viewing all, all kinds of myths like Santa Claus and and all these things. Um, looking at um, at um, these myths sort of as, as caught up um, generally in the sort of um, well the, these these three notes of Christmas you you could actually apply them to the incarnation I, I would argue <laughs> um, you know and and so in certain ways it's the idea that that there's sort of a, a major spiritual overturn here and all these things follow in in its train and that's why we think about these things um, you know so so there's um, if you think of the the um, Celebration of Twelfth Night with the, the almost Halloween-like. It's it's a a, a supernatural overturning time, <laughs> um, and and the mythopoeia around it um, gestures to that. Um, I, I don't know if that that was sort of yeah. a stream of half thought. Yeah, you no. This, ask me. This is good because I, I was wondering as you were each giving the introductions to the text, like okay, we have these foundational ideas, the making of myths, these literary qualities of good stories, especially Christmas stories, um, these ideas of sort of deeper spiritual reality and incarnation and so forth. But how are, how are all these things connected specifically to an historical idea of Christmas? So where does Jesus come in? Where does the baby in the manger come in? Where does the sort of historical particularity of Bethlehem and all of that connect to these stories, right? Because all the other we've been talking about other characters so far. We've been talking about Santa Claus, and we've got Scrooge there somewhere in the story. So I'm, I see, I, I feel a little bit of a disconnect, but I imagine you two can, can reconnect those. Whoever. Do you want to? Chris, I've I've said a lot. So. <laughs> I know I've been over here coughing. Uh, in in both of my works. There is no mention of the baby Jesus, Bethlehem, uh, the nativity at all. They really focus on this idea that Carl just brought up of this midwinter time, particularly from, in the Christian tradition, uh, Christmas to Epiphany being a time of overturning and uh, misrule. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Dr. Dimitri Fimi, one of our uh, Signum faculty, posted uh, on Twitter a few days ago that in Greece they have a tradition, and I was looking up the name of these little beings, of the Kali Kontrazaroi. Oh, she's going to get me for that pronunciation. But the pictures looked like the little black goblins from the Father Christmas letters, and they come up from the earth between Christmas and um, Twelfth Night, and they create chaos. And this is an idea that's reflected in many different cultures, the Scandinavian cultures, um, all the way uh, down to the, through the Baltics and around the Mediterranean, that midwinter is a time of liminality and a time of, of chaos and then um, 
order returns at the end of that period. And I think that Baum and Tolkien are playing with this idea rather than specifically the Christian Christmas story. Mm, okay. All right. You just asked without knowing it a question that Andy Higgins sent in. He asked, well, he asked about Chesterton, so this will bring you back in, Carl. Does Chesterton especially say anything about Christmas as a liminal time? In Old Norse tradition, this is a time when elves and trolls come out and we tell ghost stories like M.R. James. So does Chesterton emphasize that as well? I mean, he's, he's, he's implying that. That's what he's getting at with, um, with Christmas goblins. Is, is, and he's, he, in the background, he has these sort of um, traditions of things like celebrations of Twelfth Night. And um, yeah, so, so he, he has in, in the back of his head these kind of medieval traditions. I mean, he actually mentions the, um, like sort of the, the northern celebration of Christmas, you know, with the, the fires roaring and the axes on the wall. And the darkness outside, and you know you're you're sort of um, protesting the the frost giants or whatever, mm -hmm. um, you know. So 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 that is mentioned. Um, to to get back to to um, to what you said, Serena, though about the the sort of um, you know what what is the relation between these stories and and sort of the 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 manger and Bethlehem and and, and the story of Christ and whatnot is um, and, and I'm going to get very sort of interpretively meta here <laughs> but um, but but the the incarnation and the story of it is is so laden and, and so potent that, that actually to to get into it you need a number of stories around it to to dialogue with it and, and to to, um, to 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 make conversation and, and so what am I getting at um, I'm, I'm thinking of um, the the medieval mystery plays um, particularly the, the second shepherd's play which is, um, if, if any of you know it, it's, it's kind of it's kind of a, a fun play because it's the, um, the 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 Christmas story, but it's it's these shepherds who are really kind of clowns, and one of them's trying to steal sheep, and you know they, they toss him in a blanket, and, and very sort of um, um, picaresque and comic, and and kind of kind of grotesque, very anachronistic. They're all saying you know by Mary, and you know of course Mary isn't Mary yet, <laughs> um, but but. The, the oh, medieval yeah. writers. <laughs> okay. um, you know, but but so so, and 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 there's sort of a, a joy there, um, and and it's the idea that that alongside these sort of very solemn church celebrations, uh, you you need a, a levity to discourse with it, and 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 um, a, a, a some sort of. Um, uh, Humorous or uncanny counterpart. Um, so, so, so th this is part of it. That, that um, if you just strip the story bare and, and have solemnity all the time, you actually, I think, lose some of the meaning. Um, you know, the the, the point is, um, you know, and, and I'm again thinking of sort of multiple layers of interpretation, the medieval interpretation of the four senses of scripture and stuff like this, and and so there, there's a way that, that these stories, things like ghost stories. Um, and end up being reflections, like ghost stories are reflections on the supernatural. <laughs> um, you know, they're, they're um, thinking about what happens when when things are supernaturally overturned. So so there's ways that, that rather than sort of it becoming an either-or thing in, in a um, sort of dialectical way, it's it's more of um, an analogical discussion. So, so um, you know, it, it's kind of right that, that a figure like Santa Claus is sort of like, 
half Norse pagan god and half Christian saint. <laughs> like, like that's that's exactly how it should be, um, and and that's sort of how the the conversation works. And and I don't think it's a an eclipse of the Christian story. It's it's sort of a um, the conversation explodes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and of course, the um, Jesus himself was the one who would restore order and and bring light out of the darkness. And um, so it's it's good that you have all of this these different kinds of explanations of the misrule, and then and of course Jesus' story is bringing the order back to the chaos. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Okay, so you were saying it was going to explode with interpretations there. So let's let's do that because there are at least three different ways I want to go simultaneously here. But being time bound, we shall have to do them one at a time. Uh, so let's see which one to pull first. So Carl, you said, and I paraphrase. So we need all these other stories around the incarnation. What because it's so big or it's so solemn, we kind of need to go through other stories to to get at it. And maybe I'm misparaphrasing you, and this is why I'm going to ask this question now. I always thought it was the other way around. To me, I thought that none of the other stories made any sense without the Christian meta-narrative, And that's where all the other stories draw their power. And so we see in different generations, we see certain stories being really popular. So right now we have the superhero story. Well, it's really essentially a retelling of the Christ story right? And that's where the superhero stories draw their power. So, what do you think there? What do I think? I, I mean, I, I think um, I want a both-and approach. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's um, you know, and, and I mean, um, certainly, um, it, um, yeah, I mean, um, Part of where these stories are drawing their power is is from from something explicitly Christian or or something explicitly good in creation or or, or something, um, you, you know. So so that that is true. Um, and and if you rip the heart out of that. Um, you you actually lose the story. So so I think I think a good example of ripping the heart out of something is what we see in sort of modern commercialization, where where we will take some of these myths. Um, you, you know, um, people talk about wanting to to save Christmas or whatever. I mean, the best way to save Christmas is to take it out of the hands of late capitalism and write good stories. Um, that that's what I would say. But but to to go back to to you know whether you you need the the um, need the stories to un understand the incarnation or whether you need the incarnation to, to understand the stories. Um, yeah. I would say in, in human experience, I, I mean ontologically, the stories all take their, everything takes its meaning from the incarnation. Um, but experientially and pedagogically, we as humans uh, need the stories, we need the conversation. Um, and and that's, that's sort of what, what I'm suggesting. Um, oh, well done. That was great. I I'm not sure that it goes uh, chicken and egg. I mean, we had superheroes before we had Jesus. We had Hercules, Odysseus, Gilgamesh, and they were having uh, midwinter celebrations and the rebirth of the of the light long before the uh, era of Christianity. So I think that it goes further back and deeper, perhaps, than just one religion, but to the whole human experience. 
So is that what you meant, Carl, that experientially we have the other stories first? And Lewis would say that those other stories prepared our imaginations so that when the incarnation happened historically, we were ready to receive it. But you're also saying, you're sort of doing like a Duns Scotus thing, that the incarnation is so ontologically necessary that it precedes even the stories that preceded it. Yeah, I, I mean that's. I mean, it depends whether one is talking ontologically and theologically, or whether one is talking in terms of um, the development of the histories of stories. Because Chris is absolutely right. There's all sorts of stories that that come before uh, yeah. Christianity happens. Um, so, so I mean, what what I'm saying will depend on one's ontological and the theological proclivities. <laughs> but but yes, if if you take um, if you take the incarnation as, as ontologically prior as, as someone like Lewis, then you're going to say whether it's turned backwards or forwards in history, it's it's all going to be drawing on creation and the incarnation. Right. But, but yeah, that that depends on, on whether that's what you believe or not. Yeah. Charles Williams said two interesting things on this point. One is he said that if the incarnation had not been necessary for our salvation, it would be necessary for our art and our literature. <laughs> And the other is that he said, because it's so necessary and so deeply uh, rooted in human imagination, if it hadn't happened yet, all that one could say is that it hadn't happened yet. <laughs> so there are a couple of interesting ontological points to put alongside that. Um, so because this is so explosive, I'm going to just like violently jump to the other point that I wanted to take there, which is... For both of you, let's go deeper into the uh, ghosts and the haunting and sort of the other, so the other beings and the supernatural. And Carita has a question for you, Chris. Do you know if there's any connection between Baum's story and the figure of Olent Zero? To my understanding, he is a Santa-ish figure whose story has been given uh, the adopted by a fairy treatment in fairly recent history. Do you know about that? Oh, I'm not familiar with that one. How do you spell that name? O-L-E-N-T-Z-E-R-O. I am not familiar with that figure, so I can't really um, speak to that at all. But mortals being adopted by fairies is a fairly common thing in fairy tales and in, in heroic stories. Um, Lancelot is one, certainly in the Arthurian, that, that people might be familiar with. He was an orphan and adopted by the Lady of the Lake. And so you see that sort of motif occurring again and again. It's certainly um, not uh, a unique thing to Frank Baum. I think he was playing with existing motifs here. Yeah, okay. Um, a similar question came from Alex Way, if I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. The point about the medieval mystery plays reminds me of the shadow puppet plays of Indochina. They have the same mix of the sublime and the ridiculous. For example, Rama might speak pure Sanskrit, but the demons speak vernacular language and are partly there for comic relief. So talk to us more about these, these beings of mischief, these in-between liminal creatures. Um, what are they and why do we have these sort of demons or fairy creatures mixed in with the Christmas stories? Uh, what what are they and, and why do we have them them mixed in? Um, that that's a, a good question and I, I mean they what what they are. Um, 
I mean, what what they are varies from from story to story, but but I mean, I, I think the the basic idea behind them largely is is that um, if you look at what what the incarnation is, it's it's a time when um, when heaven is brought very close to earth, and the supernatural and the natural are it's all I mean, it, it's almost um, like sort of a a more um, more a celebratory um, version of that tearing of the veil in, in at Easter um, mm -hmm. be, between the natural and the supernatural and and so the idea is um, you know in, in the same way that, that uh, when you have the tearing of the veil at Easter you have people getting up from their graves and walking around um, you know this is this is Christmas this, this is when when God comes to earth so so what else might not happen um, you know when 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 the veil is rent, um, you know, you, you might end up seeing your um, your miserly former partner who, um, you know, died seven years ago and is carrying chains around the world. <laughs> um, you know, um, you might have um, Christmas gardens blooming, which is an, another motif that happens. Mm. Um, you know, and, and these might not all, all be good things, as as, um, as the questioner mentioned, the, the, the demons, you know, there's um, negative hauntings too. And... Um, um, so, so yeah, it it has to do with that sort of um, that um, closeness between the the natural and the supernatural mm -hmm. that brings about this sort of of stories. Okay. Um, that, that would be the, the theological reason, the the narrative reason. Um, you know, it's um, well, there's all sorts of narrative reasons. Um, but one of the reasons they suggest for Norse mythology is that you can't bury dead bodies in in the winter. So it's likely they're going to get up and do things. Um, but but so there's various cultural things. But um, but one of the religious things I point to is is the sort of um, thinning of the veil between the natural and the supernatural. Okay. Well, Chris, let me ask you another sort of one of the literary reasons for it, and then I might come back to you again, Carl. So, Chris, why are they so naughty then? Why are they so mischievous? If this is supposed to be. Uh, you know, the time when, when God is drawing near to mankind in order to reconcile humankind to himself, then why these tricky figures? Well, I think a, a candle casts no light without um, darkness to cast the light upon. So you have to have that, that parallel. Um, if you're going to have a great good come into the world, you have to have a, a great evil or at least a great naughtiness for the good to work upon. Um, you know, it's just not a very good story also if you're talking about storytelling. You do have to have antagonists and, and conflict in order to tell the stories. Um, certainly in the Norse, which Tolkien was playing on with his goblin invasions of the North Pole, they have a whole series of Christmas visitor tales um, where the, the hidden people, trolls, elves, goblins, would uh, swarm upon various farmsteads at Christmas and eat up all the food mm -hmm. and uh, uh, then they'd have to be chased away and and whether this is um, pagan or, or Christian in origin uh, I think that folktale collectors collected about 200 versions of these kind of Christmas visitor stories and it's just very prevalent across the whole of Northern Europe so uh, whatever the reason is, it, it resonated with people uh, over time and place quite a bit. Yeah. 
Um, and Timothy Fisher brings us back to the theological reading again by saying, since the incarnation leads to the resurrection, we get the dead, a.k.a. ghosts, as beings looking for redemption, that is, resurrection. The dark of midwinter looks forward to the spring of resurrection. But is there something else going on as well if we read the whole sort of trajectory as a narrative? Um, is this a different way of looking at Christmas than we sort of North American commercialized capitalists are used to. Are we looking at a story in which Jesus comes to earth to kind of turn things topsy-turvy, to shake it up and mix it up and not be quite as saccharine and sweet and tidy as, as we're used to seeing? Well, he did turn over the tables in the temple, so he, he could mix it up with the best of them. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I would say, um, you, you know, it, it sort of depends um, depends where you look, but but, but largely, um, yes, the, the saccharine, we've, we've really lost it. In how saccharine and sentimental we are in North America, um, you know, like a bit, but a really good for, for instance, a good story in sort of the old tradition is um, is the Grinch, the, the Grinch who stole Christmas. This is this is fabulous. This is like a, you know, Scrooge turned into a monster. You know, he's Christmas. You know, he's like just an over the top. <laughs> yeah. I was watching it with my son the other day, and like that. The effort he puts into stealing Christmas in, in this very detailed way is um, is just amazing, um, you know. But but this is a, a great Christmas story in in this tradition. So so there's bits and pieces of it, and um, probably a younger version of myself would have ranted and railed against the bad stories. But now I look for the ones that might be good and try to <laughs> push them on people. So. Yeah. Well, something else that you maybe wanted to rant and rail about a bit. You've you've been talking about it in little pieces throughout, but tell us more about it now, about the, the way that we see a competition between the liturgical feast of Christmas, as understood by Christians, and then the this pagan mythopoeia. So is there a competition between them? Shouldn't there be? What Talk to us about that. No, and this is my rant about... Um, this is my rant about Santa versus Jesus, basically. Um, so, I mean, there's there's this idea, well, there's all kinds of thoughts about, um, you know, whether people believe in, do, do your kids believe in Santa? What do you tell them about Santa? You know, there's a school that says, you know, we don't talk about Santa because it's all about Jesus. Um, you know, um, and again, I'm, I'm saying um, the, the, the reason, well, and, and there's people who say, well, if you teach your kid, to believe in Santa and to believe in Jesus, then you know you. Um, when they find out Santa isn't real, they're going to think Jesus isn't real either. Um, that's not a problem of Santa and Jesus. That's that's a problem because we don't teach people how to read, um, which, which is what what why I do what I do as a professor, um, because there's there's various levels of um, of stories and narratives, and and we we use this all the time. But but because we we've sort of um, reduced ourselves to sort of a thing. We, we think, you know, we, we must read Jesus the same way we read Santa, the same way we read a scientific text, the same way we read, you know, and, and it's like, no, there, there's different genres. Um, you know, can't, can't we um, teach people to be complex readers, for goodness sake? <laughs> you know, 
Um, and and we'd, we'd said in the Mythopeg where he's taken and take the liturgical feasts in the myth in the the religious way that that they're um, presented and and not um, make this sort of um, huge competition. Um, I mean, I, I will say there is competition when it when it comes to money and, and greed, and, and I mean it's <laughs> the Mythopeg and the Christian are are competing very heavily with Mammon and. Um, uh, with Mammon, um, Milton has this great poem: "The Ode to the Christ's Nativity." Ode to Christ's sorry, Ode to Christ's Nativity, and it's great because it's this baby Jesus coming, and but he's turfing out all the pagan gods. Um, so I like that image with regard to to Mammon and capitalism. It's like, um, yeah, as Christ has overturned the tables. <laughs> And Paul Melly also sent in another point uh, related to that, overturning the tables. See Isaiah's prophecy in the Magnificat proclaimed by Mary upon learning of her pregnancy with Jesus. He puts forth his arm in strength and scatters the proud-hearted. He casts the mighty from their thrones and raises the lowly. He fills the starving with good things, sends the rich away empty. He protects Israel, his servant, remembering his mercy, the mercy promised to our forefathers. So that's an overturning turning things upside down and being in a way a, a lord of misrule. Well, that's, that's, that's great. Uh, Chris, did you want to say anything there about that, um, the conflict between the pagan and the Christian readings of Christmas? I, I think that Christmas has a longer history as a pagan holiday than it does as a Christian holiday. Um, I think the main Christian holiday was certainly Easter, and it's it's become Christmas fairly recently in in history. When the Puritans um, were in charge of England, you weren't even allowed to celebrate Christmas because it had such a a thick pagan tone to it. And Odin has always been peeking out behind Father Christmas, and uh, um, very hard to quash those those pagan traditions and gods and the Yule log and the mistletoe and the ivy. And even if you cast Christian symbolism on top of previously pagan symbolism, um, it's always going to be at, at heart uh, a time of uh, midwinter and the solstice, and and um, you, the Christmas is sort of layered on top of that. So I think it's a chicken and an egg sort of sort of argument right there. Whether one has priority at this time of year than the other. Uh, it's really hard to tell, and it depends on where you're standing. Right. So this next question I'm going to ask is a bit more of a culture wars question with possibly some political baggage. So if you want to skate around it, we can. But the question is, so therefore, since what you've both been saying, should Christians be scared because their holiday isn't really theirs, it's pagan? Or should non-religious people or neo-pagans be scared because Christians are trying to co-opt their holiday? Or is there some happier way to approach this, and is it related to the ways that we read, as Carl was saying? Hey, I think everybody should just be happy and drink some cocoa and enjoy. Drink some flaming raisins? Absolutely. Play Snapdragons and, and whatever you celebrate, celebrate it, because that's, I think, for, for my perspective, the important part. Yeah, yeah, and then, and so how do we do that as yeah. readers? Like, do the texts support? That, Chris, do the texts support a kind of a, a live and let live approach, or are they mutually exclusive, or how are they layered? 
Well, that's really interesting uh, for our, for Tolkien's point of view because he has these Father Christmas letters that never really talk about the nativity or Christianity. Um, it's all a very secular view, and Tolkien being such a, a fervent Catholic, um, I I think that's very interesting. He that's what he wrote for his own children. So. If it's good enough for Tolkien, it's good enough for me. Oh, and thanks for reminding me, because I, I meant to say this way back at the very beginning. So um, is this related to what Tolkien says about Lord of the Rings, that it's a deeply Christian book, but that its Christianity is implicit rather than explicit? Is he doing something similar I, to the Father Christmas letter? I do think it's it's very similar, yes. Yeah, and it has morality. It has uh, good and evil. Um, all the Christian ideas without the Christian trappings. Yeah, and that's one reason that he avoided finishing his Arthurian tale is because he said the problem with the King Arthur story is it's too Christian. It doesn't work mm -hmm. for myth because it's sort of like it just wears its Christianity on its face rather than deeply embedded. Yeah, what do you think, Carl? Uh, about which part? Uh, <laughs> um, should Christians be scared that their holiday is actually pagan, and should neo-pagans be scared that Christians are co-opting their holiday, or is there a different way to read those layers? No, and I mean, I, I, I would want to do a thorough analysis of of the origins of everything before I were going to do what is like with, with a lot. Where it's very hard to pin down. Um, we just did the Beowulf class this semester, and, and, and so we we know this. Trying to pin down all the mythologies and and stuff. So, I mean, I, I would actually go back to um, you know what I go back to is I go back to Chesterton's idea of mystery, and um, back back to the sense of of um, you know in in both the the sort of Christian narrative and and the pagan Yule narrative, there there is a sense of, of mystery, um, you know, and, and that is sort of the, the unexpected, the um, things might suddenly change, um, you know, and, and, and I think, um, well, one of the things that mystery does for us is it, it, um, it keeps us humble. Um, you know, um, th this is what really annoys me when people go around wanting to say the true meaning of Christmas. Let's get back to the true meaning of Christmas. And, and I'm like, like, something like the Incarnation, um, like, who are you to say you fully understand all of that and can just go around sort of pinning it on billboards like that? You know, um, so so this sense of mystery, I, I think, is something that, that the um, you know um, the, about the Christian story and and the Yule narratives that, that go back before that they, that they come together on is is that um, you know human humans are small in a mysterious world. Um, and I mean that's that's part of what makes the camaraderie too is um, you know whether we're we're pagans celebrating the holiday or, or Christians we're we're small and and we can um, toast to that and take care of each other in light of that. Yeah, yeah. We've been getting a lot of comments coming into this last little <laughs> discussion, and a lot of them are taking a kind of an inklings true myth approach to this question, suggesting that maybe it's not. Christians co-opting a pagan holiday so much as it is God co-opting, in, in Mickey's words, or Providence setting it up, in Timothy Fisher's words, that maybe a 
knew that Adam and Christ, the pagans, would celebrate the rebirth of the sun so that, you know, God providentially allowed that these holidays would be layered on top of one another because, you know, the midwinter celebration was not the original date, Timothy points out, that the church celebrated the nativity and the incarnation, but they became layered later on. Mm -hmm. So this is, a, this is a matter of textual interpretation, isn't it, as to uh, which holiday is the truer meaning the more originary or the more completed meaning. We will never know. Yeah, and this this is why this is why I say I'd like to do a lot of research and write an essay before I because there there is a lot of sort of fake stories that go around about these things on various sides. You know, sort of if you think of the the popular meme histories of um, of Christmas, but both on 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 um, well, well on, on all sides, there's there's these popular histories, and, and it becomes so much harder to actually sort these things. I mean, there's one school that would say Christmas was invented by the Victorians, and you know, um, they were all mm -hmm. trying to mine this, um, you know, s stuff they invented, basically. <laughs> um, you know, um, but but there's all these things. So I'd want to. to I, I didn't come here to say where. <laughs> um, I, I came here to talk about the 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 um, important points of Christmas, so I'm not going to to give a history. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And to bring it back to back to myth making again, where we started. I mean, all these authors that we're studying value the human imagination so much that they wouldn't be quite so interested in what came first and what originated where as what the imagination does with it and what it what it means for mm. human for human readers and for human storytellers. Um, so in about five minutes, we're going to start to wrap up, and Carl, I'm going to get you to read a Chesterton poem, but in those five minutes, what, what else does either of you want to say? What have you not gotten a chance to say about your texts? Hmm. We, we kind of went all kinds of fascinating places, but I hope I didn't cut short any sort of closer readings or particular moments you wanted to pull out? Uh, one thing I'd like to say about Baum's book is that it was written at a time, uh, 1902, when some of the traditions that we in the 21st century think are uh, pretty cemented about Christmas, the names of the reindeer. Go through them in your head right now. Uh, at that time that Baum was writing, he had the freedom to come up with his own names of reindeer, and they're completely different, and there's 10 reindeer. And uh, he has a lot of other traditions that we um, that we think of as long term, and it turns out that a lot of this was really created in the Victorian era. So the idea of um, of the Santa's workshop and the North Pole, and the and coming down the chimney, and uh, reindeer flying the sleigh, were all uh, first written about, even if they were orally told sooner than that, in the mid-19th century. And so Baum's book is kind of an interesting way of um, going back into history and seeing that you could still create your own Christmas mythology at that point. Yeah. I'm not sure we'd have so much luck with that today if we started from scratch. Yeah, that's fascinating. Great point. Carl, any other sort of wrap-up points in your text you didn't get to say? The wrap-up point I had is is that this. Sorry, are we okay? Yeah, you your audio blinked for a minute, but you're back. Yeah. 
Okay, good. Um, so, so this sense of mystery and, and these odd sort of notes of Christmas just which calls them. Uh, one of the things I find these really good for is um, they're, they're good for um, one of the problems with the way we conceive of, Christi of, of Christmas in modern times is um, people who are sad at Christmas because um, you know we, we have this sort of cheeriness and this happiness but but there's people who are depressed or are going through deep loss and, and it's sort of like you know what what is there for those people um, people who are lonely and and I would suggest a, a refocus on on sort of this mystery and and some of these elements um, you know that um, can make a place for for those people I, I mean it's it's become a complete cliche now but I, I mean you you have tiny Tim in, in, in Dickens um, you know there, there's some fairly serious themes discussed there and and so I I would suggest by by going back to to this sense of mystery and, and this sense of of Christmas mythopoeia that that um, Chesterton is suggesting uh, we, we might be able to make more of a place for um, for letting in those those people on the outside those those deeply hurting people in, in darkness mm -hmm. Is that another reason for the ghosts and the sense of haunting and some of the darker themes that Chesterton brings up as well? Is that there's there's space for grief and loss in Christmas? That those who are suffering are not marginalized from Christmas? Very much, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there any of that in the Father Christmas letters? There is definitely in both Father Christmas letters and the Life and Adventures of Santa Claus, both authors refer to the less fortunate and making sure that they're taken care of um, first and uh, try to bring them joy. That's definitely a concern of both authors. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. That's lovely. Well, we do have a few other questions coming in, but I think it would make sense to kind of end on that note and with a poem. So you have Chesterton's own Christmas poem to read to us, Carl, Child of the Snows. If anybody wants to find it and look at the text, um, while he's reading, you can go to chesterton.org and find A Child of the Snows. Do you want to say anything about it to contextualize it before you read it? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think this, um, of course, his, his bit on Dickens that I talked about uh, doesn't really talk about uh, the, the Christian Christmas story at all. It, it talks mostly about Dickens. But, um, mm -hmm. but, but this, um, this poem he, he wrote, uh, it it captures a lot of the sort of note captures in very succinctly in four stanzas a lot of the notes of Christmas that that um, that I've talked about uh, the 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 drama and crisis and and the sort of um, the contrast of, of light and dark and uh, the the maybe there's not so much grotesqueness in, in this poem it's it's actually a very beautiful sounding poem but um, um, yeah, so so he captures in this this poem this he he also um, you know draws on on other Christmas traditions. So I mentioned the Milton poem, the turfing out of the, the gods that that comes at the end of Chesterton's poem. Um, you know, so when when you when I read that, you can think of mammon and commercialism going out the window. So <laughs> um, yeah, that that's about what I want to say. Uh, shall I proceed to it? Yes, please. That would be lovely. Okay. 
A Child of the Snows by G.K. Chesterton. There is heard a hymn when the pains are dim, and never before or again, when the nights are strong with the darkness long, and the dark is alive with rain. Never we know but in sleet and in snow, the place where the great fires are, that the midst of the earth is a raging mirth, and the heart of the earth a star. And at night we win to the ancient inn, where the child in the frost is furrowed. We follow the feet where all souls meet, at the inn, at the end of the world. The gods lie dead, where the leaves lie red, for the flame of the sun is flown. The gods lie cold, where the leaves lie gold, and a child comes forth, alone. Oh, wow, what a perfect choice. That really wraps up a lot of the themes that we've been talking about. Um, the sort of cycle myths being repeated in the Christian story, and yeah, it really is a sort of an in-between space. Well, thank you very, very much. Um, thank you both. That was a really inspiring conversation. Thank you to everyone who attended. Thanks for your questions. Sorry we didn't get to every single one of them. Um, but we hope that you enjoyed all of that and that everybody has a very Merry Christmas. Um, I guess. Merry Christmas. Good Yule. Say goodbye to everybody for now. Um, and everybody should go and play Snapdragons. Yes. Lots of brandy. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Serena. All right. Bye-bye.